0: Hey there, welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Today I'm joined by Dr. Garrett Choby and we will be discussing AERD. Dr. Choby, thanks so much for being here. Thanks
1: for having me, it's great to be here.
0: And to start I just wanna say, Chronic rhinosinusitis is a big topic and we'll be focusing mainly on AERD which you'll be explaining in more detail later but other episodes will include uh, you know other iterations of how we address chronic rhinosinusitis. But to get started uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how patients with AERD present to clinic?
1: Yeah, patients with AERD are are certainly an interesting uh, patient cohort there Classically thought of as some of the most difficult to treat patients with chronic rhinosinusitis. One of the interesting aspects about them is that they classically present later in life than the average uh, chronic sinusitis patient. Most commonly, they don't present until the third or fourth decade of life. And there's a fairly typical pattern in which they present. So most patients first develop some sort of nasal symptoms, whether that's congestion, rhinorrhea, or otherwise. A few years later, on average, they'll develop asthma. And then, lastly, many times several years later, is their first reaction to an aspirin or an NSAID product. So, it's a, pr- a fairly interesting, uh, typical pattern of the way they present.
0: Yeah, and there's a diagnostic criteria or maybe a triad that's described. What is that?
1: So, classically, this disease was referred to as Santor's triad, but of course, more recently, as some of those uh, a nomenclature has gone away, it's now referred to as AERD or aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease. And it's, it's this classic triad of symptoms. So the first one is nasal polyposis, the second is asthma, and the third one is a reactivity to aspirin or NSAID products. And it should be known this is not an allergy, even though it's commonly referred to as an allergy to aspirin, but it's simply a, a reaction to those products.
0: And what's typically the overlap between CRS and asthma and AERD? What is, what's the difference and how are they related?
1: So... If you look closely, you end up seeing this aspirin sensitivity probably more often than, than you think. Uh, there's been a number of, of uh, numbers quoted out there, but in folks who have both nasal polyps and asthma, approximately 40% of them will also have a sensitivity, sensitivity to aspirin. There's been a number of quotes, a numbers quoted about the general chronic rhinosinusitis population, but in general, somewhere about 5 to 10% of those probably have some form of AERD amongst general CRS patients.
0: So when you see a patient in clinic, we kind of discuss the symptoms that, that you'll see. Um, and now I want to dive into pathophysiology. This is complex and not entirely understood, but what do we know about AERD and what causes it?
1: It's a really interesting disease. Uh, you know, the, the short answer is we, we don't know exactly what causes it. There's a couple interesting factors that are more common in AERD patients. Uh, first of all, females are twice as likely as males, so maybe there would be some sort of uh, a gender component to it, if you will. There's also a small association with both obesity and smoking, so maybe those things are, are playing a role. The current thought is that it may be an epigenetic phenomenon, so not something you're born with, but something that has altered or methylated your genetics over time, and things have changed. The bottom line is is It's really an acquired metabolic condition, and it has to do
0: with the arachidonic acid pathway. Uh Uh-oh. Bringing back bad memories. You mentioned the arachidonic acid pathway. Um, For our listeners, can you try to paint a picture in our heads what the arachidonic acid pathway is and how it pertains to AERD and what kind of the basics of what we should know?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll do my best to paint a bit of a word picture here to, to give the listeners an idea. So arachidonic acid uh, is something that's produced in our, in our cells, and it either goes one of two ways. The first branch point is towards the prostaglandin pathway, and that is usually enacted by a uh, cyclooxygenase. That's COX-1 or COX-2. The second way is towards the leukotriene pathway, and the enzyme there is 5-lipoxygenase, and those enzymes will come, in, come into a role later. Prostaglandins, in some ways, especially prostaglandin E2, is an anti-inflammatory prostaglandin, so that diminishes inflammation, whereas the majority of the leukotrienes are pro-inflammatory and cause increased inflammation, uh, which, of course, contributes to this, this disease process.
0: And it sounds like the leukotrienes are going to be more uh, active in this process compared to the other side of the pathway.
1: That's right. So, so there's a number of leukotrienes out there and they are uh, processed. The ones we really care about are things called cystineal leukotrienes. And a bit later on in the talk today, uh, when we talk about some of the markers of the disease, we'll discuss that as far as biomarkers go.
0: And one of the things I like to talk about with pathophysiology is what happens if a patient shows up with AERD and they don't want to be treated or we don't treat it? What are the complications involved?
1: So for the most part, these patients have very uh, debilitating symptoms, and that's in regards to both the nasal polyposis as well as the asthma. So largely, it's a quality of life issue. However, if these patients are completely untreated, they will likely end up in the emergency room multiple times for asthma exacerbations.
0: And when you consider these patients, what else is on the differential diagnosis?
1: So a lot of things can be. Um, Classically, these patients may be treated as routine nasal polyp patients for many years, Uh, Certainly other things like uh, allergic fungal sinusitis can be a differential diagnosis, especially for those folks who are uh, in the south or southwest. And uh, churg strauss disease or or EGPA is also something that can be considered on the differential for these patients.
0: So someone comes to your clinic, they have this triad of asthma, nasal polyposis, and you know, maybe they can recognize an aspirin sensitivity. What's your workup for these folks?
1: So classically, the workup consists of a number of things. As they're coming to a rhinologist or ENT office, the vast majority will get or have come with a sinus CT scan. These scans are usually uh, quite dramatic and show complete pansinusitis and polyposis throughout. We also do usually get some blood work. Uh, we typically focus on a CBC with differential, mostly looking for the eosinophil level, as most of these patients do have eosinophilia. We oftentimes will also get an IgE level as well. And then lastly, if this is a strong uh, disease in the differential diagnosis, at our institution and many others, we will also get a marker called a urine leukotriene E4 level, and this can be a uh, specific marker of this disease process. Uh, It's going to be really helpful in identifying aspirin-tolerant patients from our AERD patients.
0: So when you work these folks up, sometimes we talk about an official diagnosis. Is there one that applies here that you can... Do a test or find out exactly that they have AERD?
1: As opposed to many things like rheumatologic diseases where you need things like, you know, three major factors and two minor factors, it's not quite so specific with this disease process. Now, you really need to have all three of those things, if at all possible. So the nasal polyposis, the asthma, then some sort of history of reaction to the aspirin products. However, If folks don't have a true history of that reaction or perhaps are avoiding aspirin because they've been told that in the past, an elevated urine leukotriene E4 level is also a pretty sensitive marker for that if they have both polyposis and asthma. Now, as opposed to classic CRS diagnosis with things like 12 weeks of symptoms and objective findings, it's a little more specific than that. The gold standard has classically been an aspirin challenge where either a lysine nasal spray or aspirin is given to the patient and they've been checked for a reaction We do that less frequently now, unless they're going to undergo a postoperative aspirin desensitization.
0: Mm -hmm. So once you've made this official diagnosis, uh, there are lots of different types of treatments that we'll discuss. But why don't you start with uh, the medical management for these patients?
1: So the first step in medical management is avoidance of aspirin or NSAID products. Again, specifically, this is the COX-1 inhibitors, because when these patients take these medications, all of that arach- arachidonic acid pathway subsequently gets shunted towards the leukotrienes, which is the pro-inflammatory thing. So the first step in medical management is avoidance of aspirin and NSAID products. The second one is topical steroids. A number of options are out there. Simple steroid sprays are probably not the most effective thing for this population like fluticasone. We like things like uh, budesonide or mometasone added to saline rinses oral steroids also play a significant role here and are considered a part of appropriate medical management and then of course managing their asthma with things like inhaled corticosteroids are also important for general medical management of the disease
0: and when you talk about oral steroids is that ongoing or do you do bursts and tapers every now and then
1: many of these patients have been on a number of courses of oral steroids before they come to see you because this is a very refractory disease We typically will use orals or systemic steroids for short-term symptom control so, a number of v- versions are out there. We typically do a burst and taper with about 40 milligrams of prednisone over 12 days. But the benefit of this is probably about 8 to 10 weeks in total. So it is, it is a short-term benefit.
0: Sure. So when we look at options for more long-term benefit, we, I imagine, start talking about surgery. How do you decide when to operate, and what's your approach to operative considerations for these patients?
1: So the vast majority of these patients will end up undergoing endoscopic sinus surgery, and many of them have already undergone many previous surgeries. At least in one study that's been shown that AERD patients on average undergo 10 times more surgery than a non-AERD patient, so it is significant. The goal of surgery in these cases is complete removal of all polyps and complete opening of all sinuses. This is what would be classically big hole surgery, so large antrostomies, complete ethmoidectomies, skeletonizing everything, sphenotomies taken up to the skull base, and then large frontal sinus openings. We do have a low threshold in this population to do advanced frontal sinus procedures like Draft 2B or Draft 3 procedures. I personally don't do those very often as a primary surgical option, but as the majority of these patients are getting uh, revision surgery, we will jump to that pretty quickly in many cases, mostly to allow for more effective delivery of topical therapy.
0: And does surgery do the trick in patients? Is it the final stop for them?
1: In most cases, it's not. You know, As with most CRS patients, surgery is not a cure for them and that is certainly true with AERD patients. And most patients will also need long-term ongoing medical therapy, including topical steroids, as well as some more advanced uh, therapies in many cases.
0: So after you operate on these patients, open up all the sinuses widely, what is the next step for these patients to try to control this disease?
1: So for many of these patients, especially those who've undergone multiple previous surgeries and have been shown to have refractory disease, we'll consider one of two options for long-term medical management. The first is aspirin desensitization, and the second one's a bit newer, and that's biologic therapy.
0: And aspirin desensitization, from my understanding, is usually performed by an allergist who you work with. Uh, What does aspirin desensitization look like? It sounds kind of crazy to give aspirin to a patient who has a sensitivity to aspirin.
1: Yeah, it's a a great question. it's, again, it's not an allergy, so it's not the same as giving immunotherapy or allergy shots, but in practicality, we thought about it along those lines as well. It's classically done in an ICU setting because you worry about setting these patients into a very bad asthma attack. But in our institution and many others as well, it's now done as a two-day-long process uh, in the office. We'll typically do this uh, about two to three weeks following uh, their surgery, and they will get initial uh, challenge in the office, usually with a uh, lysine nasal spray, followed by progressive, uh, progressively higher doses of ingested uh, steroids over a two-day period until they get to about 650 milligrams BID as their initial desensitization dose.
0: And do they continue that dose long-term?
1: In general, that's continued for a long-term uh, therapy, lifelong or something along those lines. However, there are some challenges with long-term aspirin therapy, uh, including some side effects that can occur. Tell me more. Most commonly, if there's an issue, it's either due to gastritis, so reflux or gastritis symptoms from high-dose aspirin, or in some cases, because they need another surgery or something along those lines, they may have to stop their aspirin therapy. In my patients, if they've been desensitized, I'm willing to operate on a baby aspirin of 81 milligrams, and they can quickly be brought back up to speed. But for other surgeries, like cranial surgery or orthopedic surgery, it may need to be stopped completely, in which case they need a full desensitization later on, which can be a challenge for them.
0: We talked about aspirin desensitization, but it sounded like you were also going to mention another uh, type of medical therapy following surgery. What else is coming down the pipe?
1: So the the new kids on the block, if you will, are biologic therapy. And these are really targeted therapies that are uh, evolving our treatment of both polyposis patients as well as AERD patients. The first one's been out there for a while, and that is uh, xylutin. And that is a 5-lipoxygenase inhibitor. So it directly works on that leukotriene pathway uh, to inhibit its production along the way. The ones that are newer and have been uh, been used more and more recently are dupilumab, which is an IL-4 inhibitor, as well as things like mepilizumab, which is an anti-IL-5 inhibitor. And these are really targeting mostly the eosinophil pathways in order to minimize uh, their production and their ability to uh, produce inflammation in this state.
0: And what are some of the challenges that come with these new biologic therapies?
1: There are a number of challenges, uh, especially for things like mepolizumab, uh or benralizumab. They're classically indication, indicated uh, mostly for refractory asthma. And there's a lot of hoops to jump through from an insurance standpoint in getting them covered. It can be quite challenging. Dupilumab is the first one that was approved uh, specifically for nasal polyposis. And in general, it's much easier to get covered. The main challenge is the expense of these drugs. On average, their cost per year is 35 to 40,000. And from all the preliminary data, once the medication is stopped, all symptoms are returned. So as far as we're aware, this would need to be a lifelong medical therapy at a very high uh, uh, medical expense.
0: So if these patients receive the treatment that is recommended, how do they do from a long-term outcome standpoint?
1: So we found in our patient population, as well as many other centers as well, with good quote unquote big hole surgery, followed by good topical medical therapy like budesonide or remetazone, paired with an aspirin desensitization or a biologic therapy, many of these patients have very good long-term outcomes. And that's been shown in multiple studies. Don't get me wrong, it's still a difficult refractory disease to treat, but outcomes seem to be much better with this current regimen than previously published studies.
0: And to be clear, this is a chronic disease, and sometimes that has to be really communicated to patients.
1: Correct. I think many patients, when they think about surgical therapy especially, think that it's like a knee joint surgery. You know, take out the old joint, put in the new joint, you know, dust off your hands and see again in 20 years. It's important to communicate well with patients that this is a surgery, for instance, is a treatment tool in an ongoing paradigm of treatment for their chronic long-term, long-standing disease process.
0: I'll do a summary here in a sec, but is there anything else that you think is worth adding or anything we didn't talk about?
1: I think one of the things I'll just highlight again is that many patients who come to see you with polyposis and asthma may not have yet had their first aspirin reactivity yet. So even if you ask them that question, they may say, I haven't taken aspirin in a while or I haven't had a reaction to it. It does not necessarily rule out this disease process. And it's important to consider uh, that you may benefit from getting an, a urine leukotriene level in these patients. And that can be really helpful. And counseling them as well that they may get a reaction later on as their disease develops is also important.
0: And one thing that we didn't talk about is, is there a specific level of urine leukotriene at which you become more concerned that they do have AERD?
1: So in general, at our institution and many others, uh, there's a specific assay that we use. Uh, and in that assay, levels of less than 104 are considered normal, above 104 are considered uh, elevated. But in our institution we've done, uh, we've published some data showing that a cutoff level of 166 is really the definitive cutoff point for AERD patients. It should be noted that if someone is on xylutin therapy, it'll be artificially lowered. So keep that in mind as well as some of these patients are already on that. But in general terms, a level of 166 is considered uh, relatively pathognomonic for AERD.
0: And now that you've mentioned ongoing therapy, from my understanding, if someone's on steroid therapy, that can also throw off eosinophilia when you do blood work.
1: Great, great point. It can definitely lower the eosinophil level. We don't quite know for sure the effects on the urine leukotriene E4 level. Some preliminary data shows it's probably not as altered as the eosinophil level, but that uh, remains a point of probably debate.
0: Well, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Just quickly to summarize... AERD is a constellation of symptoms that includes aspirin sensitivity, nasal polyposis, and asthma. These patients present with these symptoms often in the third to fourth decade of life, which can be odd for them because they all of a sudden have asthma and they hadn't previously. And sometimes they'll present with a history of sinus surgery that hasn't been entirely successful. The cause of this disease is related to a dysregulation of the arachidonic acid metabolism pathway that pushes things more towards the leukotriene side. Workup includes a CT scan of the sinuses, which will likely show pansinusitis, an aspirin challenge, and urine leukotrienes can also be helpful in diagnosis. Treatment is multifaceted. It includes comprehensive sinus surgery, oral leukotriene antagonists, uh, and uh, five lipoxygenase inhibitors can be used. And the new kids on the block, as you said, are uh, biologic therapy, including mepolizumab, do Pixint and others, um, but these are expensive and aren't always able to be used. Aspirin desensitization is also a treatment that can be very successful, but of course is not uh, covered by everyone. Dr. Chobi, anything else to add?
1: The last thing I'll mention is that uh, treatment of this disease is best done by a multi-specialty uh, team. Uh, allergists are great partners in treating this disease and help a ton with medical therapy and workup then of course, our skills are necessary for the sinus surgery, as well as ongoing therapy for these patients.
0: Awesome, thank you so much. Thank you. As we bring this episode to a close, I will finish with a few questions. I'll ask a question, wait five or so seconds for you to think or press pause and then give the answer. So the first question is, what are the symptoms of AERD, more historically known as Samter's triad? These three symptoms that we see in patients with AERD are asthma, nasal polyposis, and aspirin sensitivity. Next question. What is typically used as an elevated urine leukotriene level for patients with AERD? Currently we use a urine leukotriene level of about 166 nanograms per milliliter at which levels higher than this are more suggestive of AERD. And finally, what are the medical treatments for AERD and how do they work? We're looking for five of them. There are several medical therapies for AERD. There's montelukast, which is a leukotriene antagonist. There's xylutin, which is a 5-lipoxygenase inhibitor. There's aspirin in the form of aspirin desensitization mepolizumab, which is an anti-IL-5, and dupixent, which is an anti-IL-4. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.